I want to ask you to to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. We're going to cover the whole chapter today, which is a bit ambitious, but we'll see how we do. And um, and then I'll go on vacation to recover, but we'll see. Um, I want to treat it all as one because it's written in response to uh, the Pharisees and some things that they were saying to Jesus, and all three parables are related uh, in in and belong in that context. So we're going to look at them all this morning. Some of the best known of Jesus' parables this morning. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older brother was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. And I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. 
And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word to us this morning. Well, I noticed that the movie The Water Diviner is on Netflix now. The movie is about an Australian farmer who has three sons who were lost in the Gallipoli campaign of World War I, an eight-month battle between Allied forces, particularly Australian and New Zealand forces, and the Ottoman Empire that ended in a Turkish victory. There were 250,000 casualties in this battle over a tiny peninsula in northwest Turkey. Well, the father travels to Gallipoli after the war is over and goes to the battle site, which is being excavated by a cooperative team of Turkish and Australian troops. They're seeking to identify the remains of, of each of the, the uh, casualties of each of the armies. Well, the father arrives on the shores of Gallipia via a fishing boat, and he is immediately told that he is not allowed there because the area is restricted and dangerous. There are unexploded mines and other ordnance there, and he is told that he must leave, but he doesn't. He camps out on the beach. And then there's a wonderful scene between the Turkish and Australian commanders. They're sitting on the beach one day and they see the farmer going in and out of the water. And the Turkish commander asks the Australian commander, what are you doing with your farmer? The Australian replies, there's a supply ship back to Constantinople in two days. And the Turk says, maybe we could help him until then. And the Australian commander says, you know what the chance of finding his boys are? And the Turkish commander says, we have the day they were killed. I know the area. The Australian replies, we both know it, but why change everything for one father who can't stay put? And the Turkish leader replies, because he is the only father who came looking. Such a poignant scene in the movie. Well, these three parables in chapter 15 describe a shepherd who goes after that one sheep that is lost until he finds it. It describes a woman who lights a lamp, sweeps the house, and seeks diligently for the lost coin. And, and it also describes a father who runs out to embrace and kiss and welcome home his lost son. Jesus is revealing his heart here. He is revealing the heart of God. Jesus is the only God who came searching for his lost children. You look at the other religious leaders in world history, none of them came searching for their children. Allah did not come searching for his children, neither did Muhammad, nor Buddha, nor Confucius, nor any of the other so-called religious leaders or gods that you could list. Only Jesus. Now the others will give you their ideas about how you can try to find your own way back home. But only Jesus leaves his home to come and seek and save the lost to bring them back. Now you notice here that all three of these parables are responses by Jesus to the Pharisees' attitude towards Jesus, eating and 
drinking and fraternizing with tax collectors and sinners. Uh, Verse 1, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. They continued to grumble. And this was not the first time they grumbled about this. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, sinners is a general category, of course. Those people who were irreligious, they weren't concerned about morality or religion or following God's law at all. And tax collectors. Tax collectors were considered traitors because here we have uh, Jewish tax workers who were working for the, oppress, the oppressing government, the, the Roman government. They were collecting money for the enemy. So they were seen as traitors. And often when they got their taxes, they charged more than they should have. So the tax collectors were seen as the lowest of low people, bad politics, traitor to their country, extorting money from people. This was not what the Pharisees wanted to see. In fact, you can look at the rabbinic commentary on Exodus 18.1 and it cites an old rabbinic rule that a person should not associate with the godless. And tax collectors and sinners were the godless. And it points out in there that the rabbis would not associate with such a person, a sinner or a tax collector, even to teach him the law. They were written off completely. Conversely, Jesus received these people. He welcomed them in and he ate with them. And that indicates a deep friendship and fellowship to to break bread together with someone. He befriended these people who were considered the most scandalous people in their society. Well, why? Well, Jesus has already told the Pharisees, if we go back to Luke 5, uh, verse 30 to 32, again, the Pharisees are grumbling because Jesus has a, a party with a bunch of tax collectors right after he calls Matthew a tax collector to be one of his disciples. And can you imagine that every time they saw Matthew hanging out with Jesus, it probably really got the Pharisees going. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Well, we need to ask ourselves a couple of questions this morning. First of all, are you lost? I mean, there's something that's being said here about Jesus and and his treatment of sinners and that we need him. We need a Savior. You need a Savior. And you need to evaluate today whether you're lost or not. There are people within the parables who are lost, obviously, the son, the first son, And uh, there's the lost coin and the lost sheep, of course, that symbolize people. But Jesus is also addressing these religious people, the Pharisees. They're actually lost too. And Jesus is is addressing them because not only does he have a heart for the scandalous sinners and tax collectors, he has a heart for the Pharisee as well. And that's good news for us here today because we're more likely to be Pharisees than to be scandalous sinners. So are you lost? The second question we need to ask ourselves, if if we're not lost, if we are one of Jesus' children, do we have a heart for the lost? Do we have a heart for the lost? Or are we more like the Pharisees? And we need to ask ourselves what we're doing. What are you doing to point people to the one who seeks the lost? 
Do you have any non-Christian friends? That's what Jesus was being criticized for. He had non-Christian friends. What are you doing to point those non-Christians to Jesus? Do you pray for them? What about when people come to church who don't look like you? Do you wish they would go away? Or do you reach out to them and welcome them? Jesus' heart was to reach out and to welcome those who were on the fringes of society. Sometimes I think we look more like Pharisees, wishing that those people would just go away and leave us alone and let's just stay in our holy club. Well, let's look at the heart of God revealed in these three parables. The parables build on one another. I think one, uh, the first one gives us a basic story. The second one gives us a little more detail. And, of course, the third, the lost son, is, is full of all kinds of details. But let's look, first of all, at the lost sheep. Of course, we have a, a, a shepherd. He's got 100 sheep, and one of them has is, is gone missing. And so he leaves the 99, and he goes, and, and he seeks out that one that was lost. Now, living in the south where it's so hot, we don't have a lot of experience with sheep. Uh, not a lot of sheep farms around here. Could you imagine wearing wool all the time? Uh, it would be very unpleasant in this heat. And so we don't have a lot of sheep around. But when I lived in England, uh, when we lived in England, uh, there were sheep farms all around. And, of course, we lived in a, in a town of about 100,000 people. But it, out from that town was rolling countryside, and, and it was beautiful. And, you know, you could see these long hills that were green, and there would be little sheep dotted all over the place. Well, I've come to find out through my experiences there with sheep that they are very stupid animals. They are oblivious to their surroundings for the most part. I've told you all this before, but some of you haven't heard this, so I'll I'll share it again. But when I had planted the church there, we had a midweek prayer meeting, and we rotated to different people's homes. And and our folks were scattered out a bit, kind of like this congregation is uh, around the, the area. And so when, when I went to our elder's house, the, other, the, the ruling elder in the church, um, he lived about 10 miles away. And one route that I would take to get to his house took me past a common area, a, a green. It was a, just a, a, a grazing pasture where anybody could bring their sheep to graze. And sometimes there would be a lot of sheep there. And many times, when I was, especially when I was running late for prayer meeting, the sheep would be out in the middle of the road and invariably they would just stand there and you could bump them with your car and they would still not move. They might move five feet and then stay there. So you'd have to get out of the car and literally usher them off the road. They're oblivious to the danger. They had no clue what, what was in store for them if they stayed there and got hit by a car. Also, there was a golf course that I played occasionally that had a, a, it was a common area that, uh, that had sheep grazing, and so you'd tee off and there's sheep in the fairway. And, uh, and I remember just hitting one of those sheep broadside with a 250-yard drive, and the sheep jumped about five feet and then went right back to eating. Thankfully, I didn't hit him in the head and kill him. I'm sure the farmer would not like that. So sheep, you know, often can wander into danger because they're oblivious from their surroundings. And not only that, but they're often in danger because of other predators. Wolves love sheep and so forth. 
So sheep need help. And when one is lost, it's even in graver danger. And so the shepherd goes after that one. He has compassion on that one because he knows that destruction awaits that lost sheep. That's true of us. If we think that we're okay, (laughs) we're like sheep, oblivious without the shepherd. Uh, we, We can go along in our lives not thinking about it. Have you really considered your spiritual danger if you're lost? Some people don't even know that they're lost. And I'm sure sheep sometimes when they wander off, they don't have a clue that they're lost. But maybe today you're thinking about it and you realize, you know what? I don't know the shepherd. I don't know Jesus. Well, Jesus is seeking for you. He's coming after you. And look what it says. When he finds the the sheep, this wonderful verse, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Verse 5, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Isn't that wonderful? It shows us that Jesus is seeking and saving the lost. He's bringing us home on his shoulders. He's not getting you to walk beside him. He's carrying you. He's doing the work. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to seek and to save. He came to carry you home with rejoicing. Think about that. If you're one of his children today, he is carrying you on his shoulders and he is rejoicing over you that you were lost, but now you're found. And he's going to deliver you home. Rejoice in that. He's got a heart for the lost. He's got a heart for you. If you're lost, and, and as his children, we should reflect that to others, to recognize that people are often, often oblivious to their spiritual danger. And it's up to us as God's ambassadors in the world to point people to the Savior, to the one who will throw them on his shoulders and carry them home. And not only does he, he rejoice with the sheep on his shoulder, he rejoices over the loss that he saves, but he gets all of his friends together. And there's rejoicing in heaven. Verse 7, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous person, persons who need no repentance. Well, everybody needs repentance. Isn't it wonderful that the angels and inhabitants of heaven rejoice They're rejoicing over you if you have repented and turned to the Lord. They're rejoicing that you have repented. Well, that's the lost sheep. The lost coin is very similar. A woman has lost one of her gold coins, but here uh, it becomes a priority just like the lost sheep. And again, there's the same rejoicing when the, just like when the sheep was found, when the coin is found, there's rejoicing, you know, It's kind of like when you find that $5 bill in your coat pocket, you know, from last winter, or hopefully a 20 or maybe a 100, and you forgot that it was there. There's great rejoicing when you discover that. Maybe you didn't even know it was lost. But that's the picture we get here of joy, again, of finding the lost coin. But there is a stress on the diligence of the search. You'll notice in verse 8, she lights a lamp. She sweeps the house and seeks diligently until she has found it. So similar stories, but here we've got a little stress on the diligence of the search. Just think about that. All that Jesus did, the diligent search he made, the diligent work he underwent to save lost sinners like us. 
He suffered so greatly in his life. He went to great lengths. I mean, just think, his life was pretty miserable. Um, And I'll say something more about that in a moment, or at least Jonathan Edwards will. But he left heaven. He left the right hand of the Father. He left the place of glory and honor to become a servant, to lay down his life. Well, Jonathan Edwards says this, His whole life was filled up with suffering. He began to suffer in his infancy, but his suffering increased the more he drew near to the close of his life. His suffering after his public ministry began was probably much greater than before, and the latter part of the time of his public ministry seems to have been distinguished by suffering. The longer Christ lived in the world, the more men saw and heard of him, the more they hated him. His enemies were more and more enraged by the continuance of the opposition that he made to their lusts. And the devil, having been often baffled by him, grew more and more enraged and strengthened the battle more and more against him so that the cloud over Christ's head grew darker and darker as long as he lived in the world till it was in its greatest blackness when he hung on the cross and cried out, My God, my God, Why hast thou forsaken me? Christ went through all that to save sinners like us and like others that we know in the world. Love the hymn, And Can It Be? by Charles Wesley. There's that wonderful verse that says, He left his Father's throne above so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Can you sing that today with rejoicing? And do you long for others to be able to sing that song of redemption? Well, the third parable we have here is the lost sons, and of course this one is full of of details that we can draw out. And the parable is usually called the parable of the prodigal son and the word prodigal doesn't mean lost or wayward it means spending money or resources freely and recklessly being wastefully extravagant and that's what the the younger son did with his inheritance he went and he blew it all uh, really quickly waste wasteful And Tim Keller has a wonderful book written on this parable, and he calls the the book The Prodigal God. He actually turns it around and points to the fact that God is the one in the story. The father who represents God in the story is very extravagant. First of all, he gives an inheritance to a son before he's dead, but then when he comes back, he welcomes him back in. And he gets a ring and a robe and has a feast and calls him my son, which means he has been reinstated into the family and is, once again, an heir of what is left of his property. That's extravagant, extravagant grace. And it's a picture of God. I do commend that book to you. It's a small, short, little, small book that Tim Keller's written called The Prodigal God. It's, it's worth your time, and he brings out a lot of detail in it that I can't today. But I, I like to call, you know, this pro, some, some of your uh, Bibles may say 
the parable of the lost son, if, if it has a title. But I prefer to call it the parable of the lost sons, because there are two sons here, and I think that the second son is actually the one that's, uh, that's being stressed. But we'll, t- we'll look at both of these sons that are mentioned here in turn. First, we've got the younger son. And of course, he, he out of the blue decides he wants his share of the property that is coming to him. He would have probably gotten a, a third of the property, uh, the older son getting two-thirds according to the typical laws of the day. Of course, there were some ways around that. He may have gotten half. We don't know how much he got, but he got what was coming to him, and uh, he seems happy with that. But you notice that it was not too long. Uh, Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So basically what this younger son is saying is, I don't want to be father under your authority. I don't want to be beholden to you in any way. He basically disowns the father. He runs away, goes to a far country. He wants to be free of the father. And what does he find himself? He finds himself enslaved. He has a good time for a while. The older son mentions that he's squandered his money on prostitutes and riotous living. He has fun for a while, but of course a famine struck. He had lost all of his money, and then he was degraded lower than any Jew would want to be degraded. He was dealing with unclean animals, feeding pigs. It wasn't allowed, that Jews weren't allowed to touch or eat pork and pigs, and, and they were considered something that you should never have anything to do with. And here he is, hanging out in the pig trough. He's even looking at the food that the pigs are eating and longing for it because he's so hungry. You know, when we decide we want to live apart from the Father, our Heavenly Father, it's not going to end well for us. We think we want to be free, but we end up enslaving ourselves, and that's what sin is. Sin is slavery. Archbishop R.C. Trench, he's a great theologian and Bible scholar, in the previous century, he writes this poignant sentence about this. He says, The only true freedom is the freedom in God, that to depart from Him is not to throw off the yoke, but to exchange a light yoke for a heavy one, and one gracious master for a thousand tyrannous lords. I love that. That really gets to the point of the matter. You're trading a light yoke for a heavy one and one gracious master for a thousand tyrannous lords. It's a miserable thing that the young man experienced, but he comes to himself. He starts thinking about it, and hopefully there are some here today and who are hearing this who may be coming to themselves and saying, you know, my life is one of slavery to sin and it's a life of misery. And there's no future in it. And I need to return to my Heavenly Father. And that's exactly what the Son decides. He says, look, my Father's servants are treated well, and they have more than enough to eat, and I'm just going to sit here and eat. I'll go back and I'll say, Father, you don't have to welcome me as a son. You can 
Just, if you'll just let me be a servant in the household, that would be great, please. And he does that. But before he can say those words, you'll notice that they're repeated except for that last sentence. Verse 18 and 19, uh, it ends as, treat me as one of your hired servants. They're repeated in verse 21. He, when he actually, you know, from a long distance off, the father sees him. The father runs out, you know, probably pulls up his robes and just runs to him and hugs him and kisses him. And the son has his speech all prepared. He's repeating it verbatim. Father, I've sinned against heaven before you. I no longer am worthy to be called your son. But the father cuts him off right there and says to his servants, bring the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And then let's have a big celebration. See, the father is not going to have him as a servant. He's restoring him as a son. That's important to remember. Jesus won't have you as a slave. He wants you as a child. He wants to be your father. But sometimes we act like we're slaves. We think it's a, a miserable thing to be a Christian, or at least the way that we look and act about it. But Jesus doesn't want slaves. He wants sons. And that's a lesson that the Pharisees don't get. Because, see, you look at the older son now. You know, his older son hears the ruckus, hears the party going on. He asks the servant what's going on, and, and the servant explains that the lost son is back. And this just enrages the older son. And look at what he says to the father when the father comes out and entreats him. He begs him to come in to the feast. Verse 29, he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. See, the, the older son was just as lost as the younger son had been. The younger son was irreligious, immoral. The older son was very moral, and you might even say religious like these Pharisees. But they, they were just slaves, servants, servants to the rules. They didn't have a real relationship with the father. And the father is entreating them to come in to the feast and be welcomed along with the brother. Join in the family celebration. Let's bond together. And it's left open-ended. We don't know what the older son does. We have the words of the father entreating him. And that's how the parable ends. And I believe that takes us back to the very beginning of this chapter, verse 1, where you have the Pharisees grumbling because the tax collectors and sinners are being received and welcomed by Jesus. And this is a, a message to the Pharisees. It's a message to the Pharisee in all of us. Is our service to the Lord a slavish service without any joy? Have we forgotten the joy of salvation? Have we, be, have we forgotten how Christ has come after us? How much He suffered to to lay down his life, how he rejoices over us. That's in all three of these parables, that he rejoices to save sinners. Have we forgotten that and become just 
Christians who are trudging along day after day? Do we know the joy of salvation? And do we have a heart like Jesus's for other people to have the joy of salvation? To other people to experience being welcomed in and brought home and, and saved, those who are lost to be found. That's the mission that we have. Christopher Wright says, uh, Christopher Wright wrote, wrote a, a wonderful book called The Mission of God. He says this very provocative statement, but I think it's, it's a great statement for us to remember. He says, God doesn't have a mission for his church. He has a church for his mission. God doesn't have a mission for his church. He has a church for his mission. What was Jesus' mission? To seek and to save the lost. Jesus was out to seek and to save the lost. He's doing something in the world. I mean, it's not just that because he's going to renew not only humans, but all of creation in the new heavens and new earth. That's where all of our history is going. That's that's the end of the thing. That's where we are to go to in eternity with the Father and Son and Holy Spirit in eternity forever, the new heavens and new earth, out of the presence of sin with God's people forever. Everything is going there, and it's going to happen one day. And in the meantime, God has left His people on earth in order to spread this message of the good news about Jesus Christ that we can be a part of that kingdom. We can be welcomed into that family. We can be brought home. Those of us who are lost might not even know we're lost. We can be brought home, welcomed in, sit down, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and eat with Jesus. Will we be there? Or will we be outside, pouting like the Pharisee? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for being a loving Heavenly Father that you love to save sinners and we are sinners. Lord, we pray that you would restore unto us the joy of salvation. And maybe someone here has never experienced the joy of salvation. I pray that they would know the joy of salvation. And Lord, may we all seek to lead others to know the joy of salvation. Help us to know how we can pray and befriend and reach out and welcome sinners, tax collectors, people from other political parties, people from other races, people from other nations, people who are not in the same socioeconomic level as us, people who look different than us and act different than us, but all who need Jesus just like we do. Lord, we pray that we would remember these things. It would be impressed upon us and that you would change us from Pharisees to your faithful disciples, your faithful representatives on the earth to bring glory to your name in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.